Hey folks, Arthi Shahani here. And I just had a baby. Good job, baby. Great. Like recently, as in hours ago. <laughs> well, that's the tape you're hearing. We recorded as the process was going on. And Art of Power is going on a bit of maternity leave, as it should. We will have more new interviews to share with you shortly, including an episode with an extraordinary woman, civil rights legend, Dolores Huerta. If you don't know her name, that is a problem and we're going to fix it. For the next few weeks, though, you're going to hear some of our favorite episodes from the past. Up first is Sal Khan, education revolutionary and founder of Khan Academy. You've used his tools to brush up on algebra or learn a new subject entirely. That's coming up right now. Meanwhile, I am pretty busy in heaven taking care of this little dumpling and recovering from all that laughing gas. She's my bitchy Jason. Are you my bitchy I am your bitchy Jason. My vagina is her vagina. I do not know. Sal Khan is the most popular teacher on earth. What I want to do in this video is talk a little bit about quasars. He is founder of Khan Academy, a set of thousands of courses, tutors, and tools online. Welcome to the presentation on derivatives. Level four linear equation. Hinduism. Equivalent fraction. Cost push inflation. Cost push. I mean, do you consider yourself powerful? Um, no, I, I don't wake up in the morning and, and kind of bask in my power. Um, if, if that's, if that's the well, question. I mean, there are other, um, uh, more light touch ways to feel powerful, but sure, we could start there. <laughs> but I, I guess to maybe enter your bubble a little bit, I have always felt that the education lever is an underlevered lever in our society. Everyone talks about it, but I think everyone has become very cynical about it. And, uh, through a lot of twists of fate and circumstances, I have found myself in a position where I do think we can make a real dent. Today on Art of Power, Sal Khan on why he created the largest school in existence. He wanted Khan Academy to be a world-class education, like a Harvard or an Oxford, only online and free for everyone, everywhere. That's pretty um, unique. There aren't a lot of not-for-profits that are leveraging tech in this way, and there aren't a lot of tech efforts that have a clear social agenda. Khan Academy is a bit of a strange beast, <laughs> and so part of mm -hmm, me is also to prove mm -hmm. out that this strange beast can work. Sal Khan explains his strange beast's origin story, and he shares a personal mantra that has helped him in the hardest of times. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. 
More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Sal Khan used to work at a hedge fund managing tens of millions of dollars. He quit that job so he could focus on making YouTube videos. My friend suggested that I make videos. As I've said many times, I initially thought it was a horrible idea. YouTube is for cats playing piano, but... uh... (laughs) He made videos on how to do math. Welcome to level four multiplication. Let's do some problems. To a lot of people, this looked like a quirky guy's cute side hobby. But it wasn't. It was the start of a revolution that Sal Khan would fight probably for the rest of his life. A revolution against the educational system that has molded just about everyone listening, though you've likely never heard of it. So as I understand it, you want to basically dismantle the Prussian model of learning, right? Yeah, dismantle might be a strong word. I think, uh, you know, adapted over time is, is, is a more gentle, a gentle... Okay, you don't want to scare anyone. Okay. I, I don't want to scare anyone because that, that really isn't the intent. The Prussian model of learning in a nutshell. Three, four hundred years ago, we really didn't have any mass public education system. A minority of folks in the world knew how to read. A, a very small minority of folks in the world knew things like algebra. Then, in the 1800s, on a spit of land off the Baltic Sea, in the land of Prussia, a few people had a novel idea. Everyone should have an education. That there should be free mass public education. That's a hugely utopian way of thinking because it didn't exist for many hundreds of thousands of years of human history. It was egalitarian, Sal says, but also anti-creativity. It broke out subjects kind of artificially, like separating math from physics. It lumped kids of the same age together, irrespective of skill. They adopted principles from the Industrial Revolution in order to make it Mm cost-effective. Some of the kids are going to keep learning, and so those are the kids who can be the future doctors, lawyers, engineers, entrepreneurs, artists, professors. Other kids might start to pitter out at around middle school, early high school. They can be the mid-level managers of our industrial society. And a lot of kids start to struggle around middle school. Well, those are the kids who will be the labor force. So in the Prussian model, it doesn't matter whether you have an A-plus or C-minus in reading. You advance to the next stage with your age group, and the gap widens. Teachers have always known this. They've always known my 30 kids in the class all have different gaps. But if you're one teacher with 30 kids, which was the model of the Prussian education system, you don't know any other thing than to just keep delivering information and hopefully some of it sticks. The Prussian model made its way around the world. In the U.S., a politician named Horace Mann pushed the model as a way to Americanize immigrants and create industrial workers. But now that machines are taking over everywhere from farms and factories to law firms and Wall Street, the work that gets you paid is more often creative work of the mind. That benefits the select few who excel in the Prussian model. That's a big problem. All that wealth from that productivity, if it just goes to that small top of that pyramid, one, it's not going to be a great world to live in, but even more, it's going to be socially unstable, uh, or you're going to have to do massive redistribution. Sal believes it's high time to move on from the Prussian model. It kills student agency, um, uh, curiosity. 
you know, there's not a four or five year old on the planet that if there's an interesting thing in the room that they're not going to want to explore it. In fact, they'll cry if you keep it from them, keep them from exploring it. They're constantly asking why questions. They're constantly un- trying to understand the universe. This is every four or five year old I've ever met. And in fact, they get angry if you don't uh, indulge in their curiosity. But then they go into a traditional system. They're expected to learn things lockstep. They're expected to put fingers on their lips. And things have improved a bit. But, you know, when I was a kid and, mm-hmm. you know, school was you're passive. You need to learn to listen. You're not there to engage. You're not there to talk to others. There is a one-way flow of information. There's a hierarchy. Sal Khan says there's a clear fix. In the Sal Khan model, use 21st century technology so students can take lectures at their own pace, on their own time, and then come together in a classroom that is lecture-free and very social. Yeah, you can tutor each other, you can do game simulations, uh, you can have a Socratic dialogue with your teacher. An environment like that where you could be assessed, but it's all in service of getting better, Uh, Every human being loves that. So this is where Sal's YouTube videos fit. Not a cute side project from a guy good at math, but a proof of concept from an education revolutionary who sees the economy shifting from the industrial to the artificial intelligence age. And he sees a dire need to prepare humans for that shift. It is possible because anyone with a computer and an internet connection can plug into Sal's schoolhouse. Nobody's born smart. There was a time when Einstein couldn't count to If ten. all this sounds a smidge out there, like something from science fiction, well, interesting you should have that thought because it kind of is. Sal Khan says he first drew inspiration from a work of science fiction that he read in middle school, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. The whole notion there is 30,000 years in the future, humanity has colonized the galaxy. There's a one empire for the whole galaxy. And an academic by the name of Harry Seldon recognizes that the, the empire is about to enter a 10,000-year dark ages. Sal identifies with Harry Seldon, a professor who sees his world on the brink. And so he decides to do something about it. He creates a foundation at the periphery of the galaxy to collect all of the galaxy's knowledge so that the Dark Ages can be shortened from 10,000 years to 1,000 years. Khan Academy is the foundation at the galaxy's edge. Its work will not be complete in Sal's lifetime. Why not think on very, very long terms. And even in middle school, I was like, it seems like very few people think on that in that long term. And then when I became an adult, I realized even fewer, almost no one uh, thought on that scale. And, and, and it was a little bit of, well, someone's got to. <laughs> Sal Khan came from a family that broke the rules or expectations of a proper South Asian household. He was born just outside New Orleans to parents who started off as stereotypical, he says. His father came to the U.S. from Bangladesh in the late 1960s to do his medical residency. Uh, Then he goes back in 1971, marries my mom, arranged marriage. Once again, very stereotypical story. But then it starts to diverge, I I would say, from, from the stereotype. From what I understand, I never really met my father. I met him once uh, when I was 13 for an evening, but 
Him and my mother are, were just incredibly different people. His father left the family when Sal was just 18 months old. And what followed was a succession of both good and bad experiences. When dad left, his mom's brothers hopped on a plane and moved in. And my uncles, you know, they all started small businesses, started running a convenience store. And, you know, we saw the ups and downs of it all. One of my uncles was shot at his convenience store and we all thought he was going to die. And I remember I was probably six or seven years old at the time. That that makes an impact on uh, on you. Uh, you know, my mom was a cashier for most of my, my childhood at, at a series of convenience stores. There's just strange things that happen. (laughs) Well, I mean, standard working class experiences. You're going to see violence. You're going to see poverty. Yeah. And, you know, poverty, it's interesting. I never never viewed myself as poor. It was only, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think there's another interesting thing about being from the Indian subcontinent. You connect with the other members of the Indian community, and most mm. of them were still on that fairly stereotypical journey. They were doctors and engineers, and you know, not and to be clear, not that everyone in India is a doctor engineer. It's just that the immigration policy was kind of taking the doctors and engineers from India, um, and so I, I did have exposure to people who were upper middle class or even wealthy. So I definitely saw a difference there, uh, but I never. My mom was always very proud of how well we ate. My mom would always say, like, you know, those people have this and they can buy that car, but we eat well. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and in hindsight, mm-hmm. I realized she was right. We ate really, really, really well. <laughs> <laughs> He's being very glass half full, though often it was empty. Even with his uncles nearby, it was tough for his mom to raise him and his sister alone. They were low on cash, but not on temper. We had a family uh that that, that uh I'll, I'll say it was very hot blooded <laughs> and i don't think any any member of the family would deny this you know when people talk about fire in their belly they're not talking about kids who grow up comfortably in a in a nice middle class environment and have health insurance and and go to schools that you know where where they completely fit in <laughs> fire in the belly is usually coming from someplace <laughs> You know, I I used to be the lead singer of a heavy metal band. You don't really <laughs> end up you don't end up you know yelling on stage in front of audiences yeah. without having a little bit of uh, anger inside. Sal Khan's ticket out was Massachusetts Institute of Technology (MIT). Sal was thrilled to get in, but once he got to Boston, he had a complicated relationship with going to class. I started saying. For every hour that I'm 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 doing something, am I getting the best bang for my buck out of that hour? And so mm-hmm. I realized, for example, a lot of the computer science classes, instead of sitting and listening to the lecture, if I went and you know fiddled with the software or tried to build things, I would learn a lot more. And and it's not that I skipped every class. The ones that were Socratic, the ones that had a lot of uh, simulations, and you know you had to be there. And and those are frankly the ones that I, I enjoyed engaging in. But the ones where it was just a passive lecture, I'm like, you know, there's there's better uses of my time. That's so funny, though, because, you know, a lot of people, like I'm thinking what, like, you know, the Indian auntie or uncle would assume about Sal Khan at MIT. He must be going to all of his classes. And actually, <laughs> that's like where you're like, nah, I'm not bothering with the lectures. You know, it's, it's a little ironic, I think. Well, well you know, it's funny. A- MIT is an interesting place. At the time I was there, I think it's still the case. You can take as many classes as you want. And I was also kind of cheap I probably still am and I said well you know let me let me get as many classes as I can fit into this if you're going to take you know nine classes a term instead of four you got to really be a mercenary with your time Hmm. 
basically you just had to make sure that the exams weren't on the same hour of the same day and then you could do it. And so what did this MIT basically cutting classes but taking 2x the course load and studying on your own and skipping out on the lectures, how does that inform what Khan Academy becomes? Well, I think it, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it was constructing a philosophy of learning versus a, a philosophy of education. Like, look, if, if you can learn at your own time and pace, which was clearly working better for me, and if you just had a context where you could prove what you know, um, that seemed like a, an ideal thing. A philosophy of learning versus a philosophy of education. Education, that's the Prussian model. Learning, that's what Sal gave himself the freedom to do. Sal got one more gift from MIT. It was a gift the university gave to the world, actually. MIT decided to record their classes and then share the videos with everyone for free. And I remember reading that, and I was like, one, I, I had never been more proud. You know, a lot of schools try to teach ethics, but very few can demonstrate real ethics like this. There was a real cost to what MIT did, and a real a lot of universities would not be secure enough to share everything, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but they did it. And, and it also said, you know, they're, they're right. Like, this, is, this transcends the interest of one institution. This is in the interest of all of humanity. After MIT, Sal goes and gets an MBA from Harvard. Then he gets a job as a hedge fund analyst. He's all about making money. But during his off hours from work, his big yet dormant vision, it gets a tiny push that snowballs. I started tutoring Nadia, maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes a day. Nadia is Sal's cousin. He's very close to his extended family. And at Sal's wedding, an auntie told him that little Nadia was a poor student. Sal started tutoring her, not right there between bongo dancing and samosas, but after, when she was in New Orleans and he back in Boston. They used the internet. Yahoo.com had this feature where you could draw on an electronic pad and a person far, far away could see the drawing. After about a month or two of that, she had gone from being a young woman, she was 12 years old at the time, who thought that she wasn't smart at math. She went from that to being someone who was one of the strongest math students in her class and, and her school, which had placed her into a slower math track. So that told me that probably... Everyone on the planet who thought that they weren't capable of learning, who had lost their self-esteem, they just needed some form of intervention like that. Word spread through the Khan family. Aunties and uncles wanted to sign up their children for free tutoring from an MIT and Harvard grad. So I'm now working with 15 cousins. Then Sal started writing software, software that asked the students automated questions, giving them nudges and hints like a teacher. It's almost embarrassing to admit, but it was the first time that I had written software that, like, I actually saw people using and getting value out of. <laughs> it was probably the 50th software project I had done. And it did dawn on me that, look, if it's working for me, it could work for a lot of other folks. It's at this point, around 2004, 2005, a friend tells Sal, these lectures you're doing for your cousins, you could use YouTube to record and share them. 
Welcome to my presentation on equivalent fractions. So equivalent and that, you know, I was getting incredible resonance, not just with my cousins, but clearly people who weren't my cousins. And they started writing letters and, and, and really saying how it was in some bizarre way transforming their lives. One of the first letters was actually a YouTube video, a testimonial recorded by a mom of two sons with learning disabilities. Because of Khan Academy, her sons could keep up in class. And because of that, uh, her and her entire family were praying for me and my entire family every night. Hmm. And, yeah, you know, hmm. it's it's a pretty intimate, big deal thing to be in someone's prayers um, that you've never met. That's, you know, uh, on the other side of, of the country. The stories get wilder and wilder. He hears from a girl at an orphanage in Mongolia. He hears from U.S. soldiers in Iraq. They're all using Khan Academy. I, I mean, I'll, I'll say one last story. And, you know, this is. Uh, a young girl, Sultana, uh, Taliban takes over her town in Afghanistan, forbade all the young girls from going to, to school. So she doesn't. Uh, and she's just doing chores all day. She was about 12, same age as that little cousin, Sal Tudor. And uh, she was lucky enough to have an Internet connection. So she discovers Khan Academy. She learns algebra and chemistry and physics and biology and decides that she wants to become a theoretical physicist. And... She wants to do research in the United States. And so right. she lies to her parents at age 17, travels mm -hmm. to Pakistan to take the SAT because it's not it's not available in mm -hmm. Afghanistan. She does unusually well. This is when I find out about her. A teenager her. in Afghanistan flee the Taliban. They find each other on the Internet. He starts writing to universities to see if he can get her into the country. Nicholas Kristof right. of the New York Times hears about it, I don't, not because of me, through other some channel, yeah. and he writes this op-ed piece in the New York Times, Meet Sultana, the Taliban's Worst Fear. But mm. that article gave Sultana political mm. asylum in the U.S. Mm. She becomes mm. a physics major at Arizona State University. She graduated in physics early, and last time I checked with her uh, a couple of months ago, she is now a paid researcher at Tufts University in quantum computing. Mm. Doesn't sound like real life, right? Tutoring teenage girls in America and 7,000 miles away in Afghanistan, helping them both realize their potential. In the process, Sal Khan realizes his potential. As the small victories trickle in, as he keeps hearing from fans on the internet, Sal decides to quit his lucrative day job, the hedge fund, and turn his YouTube video series into an education nonprofit. He had no funding beyond his own savings. After the break, I make Sal Khan answer a question that his cousin Nadia has long wanted him to answer. Nope, it's not about calculus, it's about the source of his self-confidence. And if you don't have like some core belief that you can learn it, you're not going to learn it. All of reality exists in our mind. Uh, if your mind is telling you that reality is working a certain way or your brain works a certain way, what we think is reality isn't going to change unless, unless you change your thinking.
Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Many of us have the passion, the discipline, and the smarts to do big things, but we don't let ourselves because we lack self-confidence. Salcon, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about your confidence. It is, to me, the singularly most fascinating and mysterious part of you. Um, do I still have you? Are you I'm, there? I'm here. No, you're, you're, okay. I'm, you have me intrigued. You're making me sound much more interesting than I, than I am. <laughs> uh, come on. No, no, I'm not going to let you be self-effacing here um, because I, I feel like there's uh, some really important stuff to understand. And let me tell you where we're going to start this conversation. You connected me to Nadia. Nadia Rahman, Sal's kid cousin from the wedding. She's an adult now, studying to get her PhD in clinical psychology. And she had such an interesting take on what you were actually doing for her. As a kid, I was um, an Indian, you know, kind of gawky Indian uh, unibrow kid uh, in, a, in a private school filled with white kids. And, and I had developed a pretty low self-esteem um, you know, Sal helped me not only with math, um, you know, that's kind of surface level, but helped kind of instill this belief in me that that I could succeed, that I could take on these harder things. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, I, I didn't have that before. Did you hear that? Yeah. No. Um, it makes me happy to, to know that I, I, I could have helped her in, in more dimensions than just the math. I, I'm, I'm always happy to hear that. So can you reflect on it a little bit? Because it, it sounds um, pretty fundamental to what you were doing for her. Yeah, some of it I was conscious of at the time uh, because when, when I first engaged with her, she just completely convinced herself that she wasn't capable of learning. So I, I do remember the first couple of weeks, you know, almost anything I would ask her, she would answer it in a question. I'm like, you know... I'm, this isn't a literal question, but like, is, what's the color of the sky? Blue? I'm like, is it a question or is it an answer? <laughs> so I, I, I did say, Nadia, whatever you're going to answer, just don't do it as a form of a question. Say it affirmative. Say it's blue. It's blue. The sky is blue, Sal. And have, have some conviction behind it. Um, you know, and, and if it's wrong, we'll, we'll work through it, but have some conviction. And, uh, I remember it took about two weeks for, to, to get, through that, I would say that mental block, and then the learning really started to happen. And I think it was about. Well, I guess I'm, I'm going to interrupt you. What she's saying is that was a precondition to the quote unquote learning to start to happen. And... Yeah, which is true. It's absolutely a precondition. If you don't have like some core belief that you can learn it, you're not going to learn it. Your, your brain is, you know, yeah. All of reality exists in our mind. Even our brain exists in our mind. Uh, if your mind is telling you that reality is working a certain way or your brain works a certain way. What we think is reality isn't going to change unless unless you change your thinking. Most people would have a hard time knowing how to unshackle themselves in a way that you seem to know how to do, right? Like, is part of what you do in Khan Academy by teaching people in a space that is not the classroom? Is part of what you're doing shielding them 
from the structures, the feedback loops, the cues, the voices that say you're not good enough to do this? Maybe in, in certain dimensions. Um, I do think I have a voice in my head that is able to listen to what I am doing and, and say, how would I feel if, if I were to talk to that way? You know, I, I can be sensitive sometimes to tone, um, but, you know, that's that's a, a curse and it's a gift because if you're sensitive to tone, I, I do think I'm good at hopefully hearing if I'm being condescending or if I'm talking down to someone or if I'm if I'm talking too fast. Uh, mm. I try to talk to them as if they are another me, just at a different state. <laughs> I've had, you know, I've had young girls and actually parents of black and Hispanic kids also say that, and like, this is, I didn't do this by design, but they're like, you don't understand. You don't speak to my child with bias. And of course I don't speak to my, your child with bias because mm-hmm. I'm making a video. Like, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know who's listening, but they see value in that uh, because they are receiving the content exactly as a, another child would. And I'm also mm-hmm. a big believer, you know, the best way to, to sound like you care about someone is to actually care about them. The best way to mm-hmm. sound like you respect someone is to actually respect them. The best way to sound like you, you're having fun is to actually have fun. <laughs> so people I mean, can... Sal, maybe it's not obvious for you, but I think it's the looming question for a lot of people. Why would you think to take on something that is so fundamentally accepted? Like it's a given. It just is what it is. Interesting question. Uh, well, you know, the way I think about it is if if there's something in place that is 90% okay, you don't let, have to let the perfect be the enemy of the good and there's there's other places to focus your energy. But if there's something that's so fundamental that it's affecting people's belief in themselves and that thing is education and if you think that there's a way to we need more people to be able to participate at the top, so to speak, uh, and where we are in history, we have more tools than ever to be able to actually envision a way to allow more people to really reach mm-hmm. their potential. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen overnight, mm-hmm. but even if it takes a generation, mm-hmm. it's it's a fight worth fighting. So you've just explained why it's a fight worth fighting. That still a little bit sidesteps maybe the fundamental spirit of my question to you, which is why do you have the chutzpah? Like why do you, Sal Khan? have the chutzpah? If, if I was 100% sure that I was somehow this unique person that was going to be able to solve a problem, then yeah, I, I would categorize that as chutzpah and, 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 and maybe even arrogance. But I try to think about it slightly differently, which is you have a, a path that you think could help us over the coming years and decades and, and, and generations, it would be almost unethical to not try it. Mm. You know, I, I, try to, I try to live my own life that way as much as possible. Not to say, hey, I am Sal, this identity that can solve all of these problems. It's more of like, look, I'm, I'm here. Uh, there's certain things my mind is telling me could work or couldn't work, and I, I've got to at least give it a try. Mm. And so for people who have passion that they actually try to dull down because they lack self-confidence, your coaching to them is? My my advice or coaching is your mind is constantly going between, uh, I would say, 
strong self-confidence and then strong insecurity and doubt. And, you know, when you're feeling bold, a little part of you saying, are you being delusional? Are you being egotistical? You know, who are you? There's millions, billions of folks uh, like you. Why, why do you think you are going to be the person to do it? And on the other side, you have these extreme moments of self-doubt where that, that, that little other voice starts to win. And then you try to have some other voices that say, but maybe you do have certain gifts, certain things you can bring to the table. And you <laughs> totally you, you won't really know unless you you give it a shot. And, you know, since the conversation is about power, I think it really is almost a, you know, doing jujitsu on the term power, because so much of everyday language, the we use power as really a, a form of control. To what degree can you control other people or other things or resources? But mm-hmm. I've realized that it really is about being able to control your own mind and your own ego and your own view of things. And that tension gets resolved when you start to say, look, it isn't about Sal is great or Sal is not great. It is about having a, I would call it a loving detachment from your own persona, your your own ego and saying, what is your mind, your best information telling you what is right? And then if it's right, mm-hmm. go out and do it and, and make sure that your motivation is mm-hmm. not to reinforce your ego or in defense of a narrative, but make sure it is mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. you acting in the way that is most likely to lead to a positive outcome for everybody. And I found thinking mm-hmm. like that, I'm much less likely to go on an ego trip and think megalomaniacally, and I'm less less likely to also be you know in these lack of self-esteem, self-doubting funks, I'm much more likely to to take Mm -hmm. action. Mm -hmm. Can you just give me an example of of one such moment where you found yourself living what you're saying, needing to really live what you're saying? I think in hindsight, that decision to quit my day job and and work on Khan Academy full-time that was really hard because it wasn't just about, you know, a title or a job. It was, I had a young family. I had a, my first, our first child had just been born. We didn't own a house at the time. Uh, th- you know, th- this could have real lasting consequences. And so I, I kept vacillating between confidence, like, oh, this could, this could really help the world. And no, you, you're crazy. You're, you're going to start a not-for-profit that provides free education. And you think you're going to be able to manage your, your family's standard of living. And then at some point, there was just a little bit of clarity of like, well, just do what's right. You have one life. You know, if you go out there and put out positive energy, hopefully the the right things happen. And the more that I've been able to not make it about Sal and make it about just what's right, I do find that it does put a, a good energy out there that, that seems to come back. Mm. Like now I see it in a juncture where you have both supreme fear and self-confidence at any given moment, oscillating between the two. And there's this sense of threat for your own survival in those moments with those forces colliding against each other. If you focus on what's the right thing to do, I only have one life and you make it less about yourself and more about being a vehicle for some collective journey, there can be clarity in that. 
that was a good way of putting it and not just clarity, but there can actually be joy. You feel lighter uh, and then you just take the right action uh, and not feel all the heaviness around it. Thanks, Sal. I needed that. <laughs> Glad to be of service. <laughs> <laughs> the COVID-19 pandemic, which shut down Prussian-style classrooms all over the world, made Khan Academy vital. At the start of the lockdowns, traffic to the website went up roughly 300%. Half the time last year, it was kids going on their own. Half the time, it was teachers directing their students. The nonprofit says it now has 120 million registered users. Harry Seldon, I mean Sal Khan, is turning fantasy into nonfiction. Sal Khan changed the world. So can you. My lessons from his journey. One, be useful. Whether you're writing software or building a podcast, pay attention to if people need your creation. Two, do not over-identify with your identity. Wild success, abject failure, race, religion, really anything that you shackle yourself to becomes a shackle. Three, when you're stuck in analysis paralysis, Get out of it using Sal Khan's mantra. Decide the right thing to do and do it. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, made you stop, think, feel, subscribe. Go binge other episodes. Our guests are glorious and open and dropping their wisdom bombs everywhere. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. They matter. Tell your friends and family. We're just getting started. Your referrals keep us going. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can text me 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. See you next week. When is Khan Academy going to build an online dating platform? <laughs> people meet at school. Did people tell you that I, I like I'm uh, on the side? I, I have a bad habit of trying to match make folks. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.